Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, culminators. Welcome back. Thanks again for joining us. I am so excited about this. This is one of those cases where either I never met someone and they tell me this story for the first time and you get to share that magic moment with me. Or it's someone that I tell you that I've known for years and years and we've never had a chance to really talk face to face. This is a little bit different. And I even actually just found out a little bit more about our joint uh, relationship, our, our well, what kind of relationship can there be? About uh, a, a joint friend of ours or perhaps a former friend. Uh, this is William Shipley. Bill Shipley, who is better known to people on Twitter and on the internet, including in the old blogging world, as Shipwrecked Crew. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. At long last, I begged and pleaded, and you finally you found a slot not. for me. You did not. All you had to do was tell me you were that you wanted in. And this is going to be a lot of fun because there's there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff going on here. And one of the interesting things about you, besides the fact that you've been active on social media since the old days, as I as I have been, is that besides besides being a J six lawyer now, which we'll 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 talk about in a second, you on Twitter have come in for some of the most ferocious uh, criticism from the crowd that tends to see things very much in black and white. In other words, if you're not savaging the FBI, everything about it, top and bottom, inside and out, then you're a fed or, or if, or, or you're part of the deep state or you're, you know, you're a fanboy. And I don't think too many, one thing I don't expect that from and don't see it is from lawyers because lawyers understand how, complex institutions and relationships and partisanship in the world of law and law enforcement can be. But now that you've become a January 6th lawyer, I'm, I imagine that you're not going, you're not experiencing quite as much of that. Talk about that in a second. Tell the folks about your background, because it's a fascinating one in and of itself. And, and also, what you just mentioned to me before we started recording about how you and how you and I actually go back further than I had previously appreciated. Yeah. Okay. And and those two are intertwined a little bit, kind of interestingly. And uh, I was for a decade and a half, maybe two decades almost, anonymous on social media, going back to the old blogosphere days where that was really the only social media individually written and produced blogs um, that span the spectrum of politics. Um, and was known as Shipwrecked Crew. Now, the, the origins of that particular um, pseudonym are simply that it was the first name of a fantasy baseball team that I started going back in like 1989. 
Surely it's, an, this, it's not it's not an allusion to Gilligan's Island somehow. I mean, no, I no. think of a shipwreck crew. That's what I think of. Right, right. And it long before I moved to Hawaii, it had nothing to do with that. Um, and then it it was it when I he lives my, in Hawaii. He lives right. in Hawaii. I'm talking to someone in Hawaii. How do you like that? And 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 that's the sun in my face peeking in through the window, coming uh -huh. up over the Pacific with a nice little ocean breeze. Um, no, so uh, and it later became the first um, email name I ever had, and it has just what grew. was the shipwreck crew uh, at, at AOL.com or uh, no, no, it, it, well. It was at one time. It was probably AOL, um, the first one. Yeah. Um, so it's just it it has just stuck around for through no particular uh, hap or just by happenstance for for three decades, and and it just sort of uh, moved with me to the internet. Our shared history um, that I I mentioned to you before we started was I wrote uh, anonymously. Uh, at Patrick Fry's blog, patterico.com, way back 15 years ago. And I and 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 at the time, well, still is Patrick's an assistant district attorney in Los Angeles County. And I was at the time I first crossed paths with him and, and um uh assistant US attorney in the district of Hawaii. And there it is. And um, after, you know, he had a really extensive comment following and you could write the longest comments you wanted. There was no limit on, on your on the comments. Sure. And after, you know, a lot of time writing in his comment section and commenting on federal criminal cases and federal criminal law and politics a little bit, he just reached out to me via email and said, um, uh, would you be interested in, in being a guest blogger? In, in other words, putting up posts myself to add to his content on the areas where I had some subject matter expertise. And so I did for, uh, well, I did for a little while and then I dropped off for a few years. Well, I know when I dropped off. I dropped off at the beginning of the Obama administration, became a little bit nervous about, you know, uh, aggressively blogging on conservative causes when now all of my supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Hawaii were all, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum. So I just, yeah, I, I kind of dropped out for a long period of time and then went back in 2012, 2013, because I knew I was going to be leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, soon soon after that. And I left in May of 2013. Get um, kept up. And, and I, I remember, you know, I knew you were there because you represented Patrick in a slander case brought against him uh, by somebody that he commented about. I, those details, um, you can share those if you want. Had a great outcome for him. Um, all worked out terrific. We were all on Team Patrick. I remember asking Patrick one time, uh, and this was well after, you know, the blogosphere had sort of just been taken over by websites, um, places like Powerline and Hot Air, and, and, and you had more corporate media coming in and kind of displacing the individual um, guy in his pajamas in his basement is the uh, which was pajamas media <laughs> back in the day, right. um, PJM. Uh, and and I said, do you think you could ever do this again? He goes, absolutely not. I was just in the right place at the right time, caught lightning in a bottle. I never imagined it would turn into what it became. And then, as you know, and we don't have to go into this in any detail, um, you know, Patrick and some others that we were both familiar with became never Trumpers. And there was a, a break, a, a fracturing, and it was not pleasant, and it was ugly. 
uh, and lots of things were exchanged back and forth. I, I can't say that I was really a Trumper at that point. I was always a cruise guy. Um, yeah, I, but- I was a cruise guy. Uh, that, that was really who I was, um, you know, hoping would, would get the nomination. And I always felt that uh, he would have gotten it if it hadn't been for, uh, what's his name down in Florida? Um, Rubio? Rubio, you know, really insisting on, you know, I'm I'm here to win Florida. I'm going to win Florida. I mean, Cruz right. would have won Florida, I think. Well, whatever. Uh, so, so that you know, Trump, 2000, Trump had to 2000, grow on a lot of us. Yeah, 2016, it just came to an end. But and then I reminded you that I had that connection, and you know, and, and at that time was still anonymous, and remained anonymous even for many years after that for for reasons that you know probably don't really want to talk about too much. But in October of 2021. After I had decided to take the plunge on some January 6th cases, um, uh, Leslie McAdoo Gordon, another friend of ours, mutual friend, uh, she asked me, okay, if you're going to do this and your name's going to be out there on pleadings and, and whatnot, is there any reason to remain anonymous? And I said, no, I don't think so. And so she announced to the world on Twitter who Shipwreck Crew actually was once I began making appearances in cases in October 2021. And would you say that by virtue of that experience, you would reconsider any of the things you said about the Bureau prior to October of 2021? No, no. And here's here's my explanation. Um, you know, I get, 22- I, 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 I'm assuming people know what you and I know. But let's get give a little background about what sure. I what sure. I'm talking about. Yeah. So I I started in the Department of Justice in 1992. I was hired in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of California. Um, I had a little bit of an inside track there. I had 105 people applied for one position, and I knew somebody who said, I can get you an interview, but you have to get yourself the job. And I got the interview, and I got the job. Um, And that was 1992. It was in the civil side. I was a civil litigator. I came out of a, a civil litigation firm and got a job as a civil litigator. I did that for two years, and it took me that long to figure out that there are no juries in civil litigation with the government. So um, I wanted to try jury cases. I did not really expect to be attracted to the criminal side. I never really wanted to be a district attorney or anything like that. Um, But that's where the jury trials happen. So I wandered down to the other end of the hall and talked to the chief about whether I could switch sides, and he said, sure. So just like that, I became a criminal prosecutor in 1994. Um, And as I just mentioned, I left the Department of Justice in uh, 2013. So my plan all along was to just stay five years, try some cases, and then go out and be a big plaintiff's lawyer. And 22 years later, I left. So, you know, plans change. Um, Now, here's the the issue of, of why... The Bureau has changed, why the Department of Justice has changed and why my experiences there were absolutely, you know, true and honest as to the era and aren't necessarily the same anymore. And it's taken me some time to, 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 you know, come to grips with that. Even when I left, both the Bureau and the U.S. Attorney's Office were undergoing real cultural shifts. And that was 100% a result of the change in recruiting during the Obama administration. You know, if you'll recall, in the in, late in the Bush Bush uh, 43 term into 2007 2008, 
you know, there was a lot of controversy about Federalist Society lawyers populating throughout the Department of Justice. And um, coming out of law schools after the Iraq War, uh, it just became a real hotbed of liberalism. You know, not that they all weren't always, but I mean, it really became an issue. If you remember all the litigation, all the big firms stepping up to represent Gitmo detainees, you know, and those are all, you know, the ACLU, you know, you know, the, the and, I, and I, I'm not begrudging that point of view. I mean, the, the system works best when it's balanced on all sides. Um, that's but, how old that's how old we are. We remember when that might have arguably been the case for a minute. Right. Or two. Right. So the Obama administration began to uh, aggressively hire, uh, you know, uh, law school graduates who had the right kind of resume entries. Now, they they claim they never did. But, you know, I know for a fact that if you had a resume entry in 2009, 2010, 2011 that showed you were a Federal Society member, you couldn't get a Justice Department job. You know, those those just you had no chance. But, you know, if you had uh, the Sierra Club or, or Lawyers ACLU Guild. Lawyers or Guild. Lawyers, yeah, no, then you got the interviews and, and those, those, those applicants got the jobs. And that, over time, slowly began to populate the Department of Justice from top to bottom. And then, you know, when you spend another, um, when you spend a, a, a five, six, seven years and those people begin to move up the chain, they then become the hiring crew. Um, and, and the same thing happens even faster in an institution like the FBI. So with the FBI, what happens is they have a mandatory retirement at age 50 or, or retirement eligible at age 50, mandatory at 57. And most FBI agents are at least 25 when they get hired. So you've got that like 25 to 30 year window that the entire workforce turns over. The entire workforce, you know, within 25 to 30 years, all the agents that were hired are gone. So think about that in these terms. Agents that were hired right after 9-11, 9-11-2001, they're in there coming up on their 22nd year. All of the 9-11 agents, all the agents hired in the aftermath of 9-11 will be gone in four years. Gone. All the agents hired during the Clinton administration are pretty much gone now. And and what one of the things that was true of FBI recruiting in 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 the 90s and then even in the early 2000s was the recruiting recruiting tended to favor ex-military types because you think about when the Clinton administration hollowed out the military as the peace dividend. Not necessarily a bad thing, but you know the Soviet Union disappears, and now you've got you know a, a friendlier Russia under Boris uh, Yeltsin. You can, you can quibble about the wisdom of the policy, but it was in and of itself not an irrational policy. Yeah, but it happened. I mean, a lot of the officer corps were discharged, um, and 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 that became a, a recruiting ground for federal law enforcement across all the agencies, including the FBI. So you had a lot of military. You had a lot of state and local law enforcement who wanted to jump to the feds just because of the different challenge. And that was, you know, the, 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 the incoming recruiting classes at the FBI Academy were largely male. They were largely alpha male, you know, dominant, you know, military officer types, leadership. Um, and, and that remained true in the aftermath of the Iraq war. Again, you've got a lot of military personnel coming out looking for jobs in, in federal government so they could maintain their retirement 
uh, system. Uh, and that was your workforce up through about 2006, 2007, 2008. It all changed with the Obama administration. In the same way the Department of Justice recruiting changed, in the Obama administration under Robert Mueller, you know, as we all lived through, diversity became the catchword. You know, the workforce needed to reflect the population. And where did they go to find those people? They went to college campuses. So the FBI's primary recruiting ground for the last 15 years has been college campuses. So think about what comes off of college campuses these days. You know, the, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was always uh, proud of the fact that a lot of his agents were lawyers and accountants. Right. That's well, what I, I when I was right when we were when we were growing up in the '60s watching uh, uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.'s FBI. That was the image, and that was the truth. That was the FBI. You know, all lawyers and accountants. Uh, who reluctantly learned to pick, you know, to get go into law enforcement, uh, and became the, you know, the the best cops and the most ethical cops in the world, and you know, f saving us from communism and that kind of thing. But starting in the starting about two thousand, you know, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Now you've got all of these uh, humanities majors. You've got all of these soft social science majors who are beginning to populate the lower ranks of the FBI and, and, and something that most people don't know. And I don't know that it's really ever changed. It was a shock to me when I found out, but the track into management at the FBI is in the initial stages based on volunteerism. If you want to become an FBI manager, you want to move up into management transition out of doing casework because FBI supervisors don't do casework. They quit being in effect, agents they become managers the way you get started down that path is you raise your hand raise your hand i want to be a manager oh another i see what you're saying okay it's not it's not based on merit and as a result as many fbi agents veteran fbi agents will tell you some of the, the supervisors were some of the worst agents because they were bad agents and they opted to go into management to avoid you know doing work they didn't like or they weren't very good at so it's a kind of accelerated peter pr principle exactly so but with the with the um so so as a result you begin the culture of the fbi begins to shift as the hiring priorities shift the recruiting priorities shift now we're a decade plus into that and those people that were hired at the beginning of the obama administration or in the first two or three years when these recruiting priorities changed they're all now in management only the worst of them or many of the worst of them right so so that's why you end up with a politicized fbi and that's why you end up with a a, a shifting priority in the fbi that reflect political sensibilities not you know law enforcement priorities of course i mean clyde tolson was not exactly a, a, the epitome of a great a great agent even though he became he was a favorite of Diego hoover's my understanding is that he was a rather mediocre uh, agent himself. Is it, I mean, you're not you're you're not former FBI, but you obviously you're speaking from your the experience that you picked up hanging out with G-men as a prosecutor. Am I co I'm correct about that, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, for, for, for 20 plus years, you know, on the criminal side, I worked early in my career, probably the first uh, seven, eight, nine years. I worked primarily, not exclusively, but primarily with DEA. When I was in California, I did a lot of drug cases. Uh, when I came to Hawaii, uh, the slot that they uh, offered me was a white collar organized crime slot. And that brought me into a lot more contact with the FBI, but also with the IRS criminal investigators. I did a lot of work with them. I liked working with the IRS because those guys were accountants. And I actually had, I only had one outright tax trial. Um, I, I swore I'd never do tax cases, didn't want any part of it. I uh, had one outright tax trial and uh, the IRS agent said, how about if I just write the questions and the answers for you? <laughs> oh, God. I said, I'm good with that. As long as I hope it was as long as it was direct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is direct. <laughs> because I'm cross. You sure as hell better understand what you're asking. Yeah. OK, so um, that's so. So, you know, uh, so I did, did, you know, a little more than 10 years in both offices. You know, I was uh, left in 2013, have done some civil litigation, you know, have come to really dislike doing the discovery on the civil side. I just, you know, with an entire career based on, you know, criminal defense work, I, I kind of just like the hit, the run and gun aspects of criminal defense better than the, you know, depositions and document productions and interrogatories yeah, and requests for admissions. That stuff just wears me out. I mean, I, I have to have other people basically run discovery for me because I don't have the patience for it. And the, and the yeah. spats and the hiding the ball crap, let someone else fight that out. I, you know how long it's been since I've done a live cross-examination? I mean, you know, trials ground to a halt two years ago. I mean, unfortunately, you're, you're busy with trials, but on the civil side, there are so few civil trials now. And I really miss, I really miss being in court, but to me, the most fun you can have with your clothes on is cross-examination on a, on an order to show cause, cause or a preliminary injunction evidentiary hearing, because you've been sandbagged per se. You've got virtually no time to prepare, which gives an advantage to the geniuses among us <laughs> you know? and people who, who just have the, have that ability to hear something that doesn't quite sound like the phraseology of someone who's got nothing to hide. Anyway, enough no, of that. And, that, and that's actually, and, and that is, um, you know, I find in doing what I'm doing now, that's a huge advantage because as I say to individuals, you know, look, we're in federal court and, you know, these, these criminal cases that I'm doing on January 6th cases are all in federal court. And as you know, they're, you know, a huge swath of lawyers in the country want no part of federal court. They're intimidated by it. They're intimidated by the courtrooms. They're intimidated by the, you know, in the criminal case, the Department of Justice on the other side. They're intimidated by the federal judges who tend to have a lot less patience for bad lawyering. Um, but, you know, it's all I've ever known. I've never tried a case in state court. Um, I've only been in federal court my entire career. Um, and that and, is a, that is a and, largely charmed life from the point of view of a federal uh, litigator. You know, I've never I've been admitted to the New York bar since uh, 1989. Never tried a case in New York, New Jersey, plenty because you know what? It's a lot like the, it's a lot like the federal system. The rules are very similar, uh, and the judge quality is quite high. But I wouldn't, you know, I w I want to be in federal court almost all the time. 
Well, the, what, the, the thing I tell people when they talk about, you know, federal court practitioners and whether lawyers are cut out to be in federal court or, or, or not, or whether the experience, I said, look, here's the thing about federal court is there's a language that goes along with being in federal court, understanding the rules, understanding the rules of evidence, understanding the rules of procedure, whether it be civil or criminal. And you know right away when somebody doesn't understand the language that they don't have any experience. And the judges know. If you can't speak the language of the rules of evidence or rules of procedure in a federal courtroom, the judge knows immediately. And and generally, you don't get a lot of um, you're not going to get a lot of uh, calls go your way because the judge knows you're just guessing. You're right. You're right. And and also you need to know the local custom. Uh, you know, somebody sent me a bunch of papers on a case where I was local counsel. And I said, this is a perfectly good set of papers for the District of Maryland. But in New York, in the Southern District of New York, we don't say this honorable court. We that's not language we use. You 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 know uh, you here's here's what our papers look like. It sounds trivial, but almost every court is provincial to one extent or another. Right. If they think you're from well, out of town, or I can, I tried a case in in Phoenix, and first of all, the court reporter wanted to kill me because I was talking so fast. You know, this Jew comes out from, from you know, from New York and, and he, he never heard anything like this. And I'd never had a problem with a court reporter anywhere else in America. But the judge was so damn good. Judge Tileberg, I think he's retired now. He was so damn good. Well, I, I won, so I'm, I'm prejudiced that I mean, you know, we all hung in there. Listen, we, this is too much inside baseball. Although I do. People do like that stuff. You were just to, to sum up, you're talking about the changes that the Justice Department in general, both on the investigatory side and the uh, on the prosecution side, have gone through culturally. And it's really different now. And you've you, you've assimilated that difference after a couple of years now in in the uh, uh, in the trenches on these on this J6 stuff. Of course, you're also in the most insane district of which I'm a member myself, so I must speak with discretion and caution and respect. But the district of DC is wow. Well, you know, I, I have had good experiences in that courthouse in terms of um, you know, the judges. Um it's, it's an inter it's an it's an interesting place. Um it is obviously, you know, it has a political spectrum that is well known because it's in the political city. Now I have a point of view was whether there even should be a circuit or a district there, you know. I you hit the nail on the head. What, what and, and people want to turn a city. They don't, the whole idea of turning a city into a state or making a special district and, and a court of appeals, a circuit, right. a circuit for one city that, that sits on top of one district. And and I've made this point to some of the judges. You know, I said, you know, Your Honor, I, I've got to say, you know, I've, I'm used to. I, I spent my whole career in the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, the Ninth Circuit, right. you've got a you've got a circuit court with 26, you know, regular judges, plus a whole litany of senior judges. And you've got, you know, probably 25 or 30 district courts feeding decisions up to that Ninth Circuit. And that Ninth Circuit pumps out opinions on all manner of cases. And I go looking for I go looking for court authority in the circuit of the district, the circuit court for the District of Columbia. And I don't find anything. Right. Because they basically got cases that are coming from thirteen judges. That's it, and, and if and and it just doesn't produce the same. And the 
the types of criminal cases, unless there's some sort of DC-centric, DC-venued governmental fraud case or something, the types of cases that come out of the DC district court are not terribly complicated. If you you, know, you look at the, the case authority, um, and even the January 6th cases, other than some issues, you know, I tried to tell prosecutors, it's an assault case on video. I don't care where it happened or what day it happened on. It's an assault case on video. Let's talk yeah. about the evidence. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, did they, did they even want to have a conversation? I wouldn't think so, because I think they've succeeded in getting the, the, the panel of judges in that circuit to literally and explicitly take the position that, yes, these are political crimes. We have a lesson to teach. This is a moment of truth for our country because this was an assault on democracy. Literally an assault on democracy. Right. Uh, do they hear you? Do they respect that position or, or did you get blown off? Well, oh, the prosecutors? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say here because I'm sure they will all listen to this at some point. I've developed right, a little bit of a... I've developed a little bit of a reputation among the prosecutors now because, you know, a lot of them are relatively new. You know, if you think about, okay, so, so consider this, the district of Columbia U S attorney's office has a certain number of AUSAs. You know, it's not like they got a hundred new AUSAs to do these cases and they have other work. You know, it's not like they could just set everything aside that they were otherwise doing to just handle these cases. It's hundreds right. of cases have been brought. There are other so, Republicans to prosecute besides. Right. So, <laughs> So as has happens often in the government, it happened when I was there, um, the executive office of U.S. attorneys sort of sits on top of all, you know, 93 districts, um, has dragooned prosecutors from across the country to handle, you know, a small number of these cases. And so if you're this, let's say, just for example, let's say you're the you're the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California. An EOUSA, Executive Office of U.S. Attorney, says, I need two of your people to handle January 6th cases. Who are you going to give them? The you're kids. not going to give them. You're going to give them the kids. You're going to give them the least experience. You're not going to give them the guy who doesn't want to be in, away from home and his kids and his, well, if he's married long enough, maybe he does want to. Okay. but Or or, di or diverted from some big, long-standing investigation that's important to the office and important to the law enforcement agencies. You're going to give them the, the, the inexperienced, newer prosecutors for the most part, not exclusively, for the most part. And, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia tends to have a high turnover rate anyway because people going into that office are, are heading for law firms. You know, they're going in for four, five, six, seven years, and then for the most part, they're out. So somebody said, I don't know if it's completely accurate or not, but in the Oathkeeper case that I did, the second Oathkeeper case, one of the other lawyers said, I think you've got more federal trials than all the prosecutors combined, <laughs> which I think is probably pretty accurate in pretty much any courtroom I go into. I have, you know, one of the funny things that I've encountered is in, in, 22 years, 20 years as a criminal prosecutor, I only had two cases where I had co-counsel, twice. My very first case where I was the co-counsel, and then a case about six or seven years into my career, which went three plus months. And the office said I needed somebody helping me. I didn't like walk around looking for somebody. The, the chief said, I think you need somebody to back you up in that case because it's, it's, it's too big for one person to handle alone. Okay, and I did, and it worked out fine. Every other trial I handled, I did by myself. I come into these J6 cases 
a, you know, a case that's going to take a week with video evidence, and there's four prosecutors. I mean, four prosecutors. I made fun of this going way back before I started doing this. I made fun of the Roger Stone prosecution by the special counsel's office because that, you know, the, the, the uh, obstructing Congress, lying to Congress case against Roger Stone at the end of the Trump administration. They had four prosecutors on that case, two special counsel lawyers and two uh, assistant U.S. attorneys from the District of Columbia. They had five witnesses. They called five witnesses in the case, took four prosecutors to call five witnesses. It's like, this, this is a comedy. Why, what is going on? Why are you guys doing this? Well, it turns out they're doing it because they all want to get the trial notation on their resumes. So when they go apply to Jones Day or whoever, they can say, you know, that they are a, you know, uh, tried federal criminal cases in the District of Columbia. So it's just like, these are entertaining. These, these kind of little factoids you know, cause me to chuckle. You know, I walk into a room, I'd see five prosecutors. It's like, all right, let's get started. You know? Yeah, well, you know, I, it, it's interesting to know what you're saying is that a lot of people don't realize that lots of people with the title of, of assistant U.S. attorney haven't tried all that many cases. Less so now than probably in any time in the last 30 years. Part of that is COVID. You know, it really kind of slowed down the whole process. And 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 now, you know, it's just it's just it's just odd to me. So if you want to be a trial lawyer, be a trial lawyer. Go and try your cases. Don't drag four other people in with you to share the responsibility. Well, that's what happens when no one's no one's paying for it. All right. So, All right. Let's talk about what's going on with January 6th, because we've already chewed up believe it or not and you, you know lawyers like us old lawyers who are comfortable in court could could definitely tell stories for a very long time maybe we just do a live stream and people you know jump in and because uh, i think people really enjoy it but let's talk about what's what you're doing now and how how that's how that's affected your your take on the okay. federal just on the on the on the justice system well um I have to be careful, obviously, you know, and, mindful and, and, of the ethical not, rules. And I'm not baiting you. I'm not, in other words, I, I'm looking to you for, I think, as, as good as anyone. Uh, you know, I had another guest a few weeks ago who ha feels very burned by the system, another lawyer, J6 lawyer. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I expect to hear a more nuanced uh, presentation from you. Well, okay, so so the way I came into these cases, and I don't want to talk too much about the details, but but there was another lawyer who I knew. I didn't know him well. I'd never met him in person. You know, only knew him. Uh, we had worked briefly together on another case where we just sort of came together by happenstance. And um, um, I came and went from that other case and, and just had a couple of interactions with him online and a couple of phone calls. So then he was representing multiple January 6 defendants and seemed to have some issues in the summer of 2021 uh, that were, you know, kind of playing themselves out in the media and on social media. And I just sent this person an email that said, you know, um, remember me, you know, we worked together on this other case, AUSA for 22 years. I see you're involved in these January 6th cases. Um, do you need help? And his one word response back about five minutes later was yes. 
And so that led to a phone call and discussing, you know, what was going on and, and how I might be able to provide him some assistance. At that point, I wasn't admitted to the D.C. court, so I couldn't actually just start making appearances. Um, and, you know, the, the, the arrangement was I would help kind of behind the scenes. I would look at uh, the felony cases, evaluate the evidence, talk to the clients. And then over time, once I got my D.C. bar admission worked out, maybe start to make some appearances uh and we just start slowly and i'd make appearances as necessary not just wade into all the cases at one time well that relationship was fine for a period of time and then some external events and external forces kind of uh, uh some things happened and um it become beyond either our control it wasn't something between us it just some ex external issues arose and um, I ended up kind of separating myself and going a different direction. Um, and most of the clients who had felony cases, who I'd been interacting with quite a bit and knew my background, opted to stay with me. And so that would have been like the winter and spring of last year. Uh, got my DC bar all ready to go as of April 1st, 2022. And I think I made like 12 or 16 appearances over two or three days. Um, just filed notice of appearances in a variety of cases. And then all of a sudden I'm representing 20 January 6 defendants all at one time. So non-lawyers should understand that making an appearance in the 21st century um, means electronically filing a paper that, that metaphysically or symbolically amounts to your appearing in a case. And so now you've made right. an appearance. I'm, I've appeared in cases all over the country, in courts I've never stepped into, uh, which you, most of which end up settling because I do civil work, which most cases end up settling. Uh, but but the, so you can that's how you can do 21 appearances in a day. Right, right, exactly. So um, at that point, you know, I am an unknown, I'm an unknown quantity. I'm some guy who used to be a prosecutor stuck on a rock out in the middle of the ocean, a long ways away from the D.C. courthouse. And all of my relationships with the clients at that point were either via email or phone calls. Um, and uh, I made, I started to make a few Zoom appearances with some of the judges. Um, and I mean, I don't frankly know what kind of impression I was making at that time. I remember my very first appearance with Judge Maida in the Oath Keeper case after I came in for Roberto Menuda in April of 2021. And that case was fast tracked for a trial at that point in September. So I only had five months and, and I, you know, you know, first, first appearance there, you know, there's nine or 10 lawyers on the line and the case has been around for a year already. And there had been nonstop, you know, complaining about the government's production of discovery for a year. And so Mr. Judge made a me, Mr. Shipley, you have anything to add to whatever we had been talking about that? And I started to complain about discovery and he listened to like 15 seconds and he cut me off. And he went on to another lawyer. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I made him mad or something. And it dawned on me later. My thought was, he, he, I was wasting his time. Those complaints had been made since the case started. And I wasn't doing anything at that point constructive. I was just listening to myself talk. Um, All right. I mean, which, listen, you, you didn't necessarily have time to read every transcript from every hearing. Uh, you had to make sure you had to observe what you were seeing and what you were experiencing. You're looking at an empty red well in terms of, you know, Brady material. Right. So, so, but, you know, thereafter, you know, I, when asked, I, I, I always 
felt like I had something substantive to say that was meaningful to the hearing. And I developed, I thought, a pretty good relationship with Judge Maida. And by the time we got to trial, um, uh, I felt in many respects that he was listening to my comments and often siding with me. And, and, you know, from the first Oath Keeper case, which I was not in, the one that had Stuart Rhodes and, and, and all the big shots in that, um, uh, you know, the, the government won pretty much every argument over the evidence in that case. And then in the second case, which my client was in, I think the government lost over 50% of the arguments and they weren't very happy about it. Um, so, uh, and then I've had experiences with, I, mean, I, I think I, 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 I counted the other day. I'm, I just, I also, for, for non-lawyers, evidentiary rulings and evidentiary objections, when to make them, when not to make them, how to make them. This is really where the men and the boys are separated in, I mean, not this, there are other places too, but this is one of the areas where really experienced trial counsel makes a gigantic difference. Uh, so, you know, the fact, the fact that you, with your experience, were able to get such different results, you're, I know you're not telling me this for purposes of crowing about your success, but I am telling the uh, listeners that it, it's, it's the pilot. It's not the plane when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to. Yeah, it, well, and I think that kind of goes back to, you know, the comment I made a few minutes ago about, you know, speaking the language, you know, and, and, and the important thing that, you know, people need to know is for the most part, you know, the trial judges at the district court level, they have tried hundreds of cases. They have more experience trying cases as a judge than all the lawyers in the room. Right. And, and, and so the ruling on, you know, making rulings on the rules of evidence are, you know, like, that's like the back of their hand. They, they know that stuff cold. So unless you can offer objections within the context of what they're expecting to hear, you're going to lose right before you finish your first sentence. You know, the objections have to be made within the context of the rules of evidence. And if you are if you have the context right, then it goes to what's the nature of your argument. And if you have both of those right, you stand to win. Um, and the judges, that's how they hear it. That's how it lands on their ears. If you have the context wrong. Well, judge, it just seems to me it's like, well, that's not an objection. <laughs> <laughs> And also there's, so, a there's a credibility factor. People who watch and, you know, federal cases are not televised, but, you know, the law tube crowd, which includes many of my friends, um, you know, they doing these live coverages for, for entertainment purposes of uh, state court cases in those states that allow cameras. Why didn't he object? Why didn't he object? I'm not talking about most of the lawyers who were watching understand that there are times not to object, but there, mo there's lots and lots of questioning that is technically objectionable. You mm -hmm. got to choose your spots. You want, you know, Ted Williams, when Ted Williams took a pitch, umpires understood it was probably not a strike because Ted Williams was up there to hit. And it's, you know, it's the same thing with trial objections. If you, you know, if you object every time there's a complex, uh, you know, a multi-part question 
or there's a little bit of leading on 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 direct, the judge is going to get is going to just tune you out. Right. Yeah, and and I you know sometimes you know you generally know what the answer is going to be. You've had discovery. You know what this witness has said in their interview. You know what the 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 government get, usually constructs their direct from the evidence, the the three o twos or other the uh, wire intercepts, whatever. And as long as you've read your discovery and and done outlines for each witness and you know the nature of their testimony, even though the form of the question might be objectionable, you know what the answer is going to be. And you might want jury to hear that answer because you have something you're going to do with an answer on cross. Exactly. exactly. So it's, 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 it's tactical and strategic. So I, I like to let stuff come out sometimes because it's something that I'm going to make use of, even if I could object and maybe, you know, win the objection. Bill, we're never going to cover all the stuff. Sum up for me, where do things stand? Is, 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 it, is it, as some people say, an utterly, an utter travesty or people getting a fair shot? I mean, one, one of our mutual friends who, who's down there with you guys in the, in, you know, trying these cases has told me, you know, you have to remember that most of the guys who are being prosecuted should be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Should they be treated the way, should they be in pretrial detention for two years? Should they be in solitary? Should they be getting felony? Ch- Those are all issues we can discuss. But the idea that this was, according to him, merely a case of, uh, uh, you know, the the Capitol guards opened the door and people just walked in. What's wrong with that? That. No, no, that's not the, it, really the story. And, th- and this is the stuff that, as you started out with, gets me so much, you know, uh, uh, criticism on Twitter. The one thing that I have always tried to do, because it entertains me, for lack of a better reason, is to be a truth teller. I don't mind poking the tiger even on my own side, so to speak. And there are some very well-known tigers on my own side that I will poke and say, you know what, you you've got it wrong. You know, I, I mean, I'm in, I'm in a position where I have a grasp of the facts and you're speculating about things that you don't really know and you've got it wrong. And, and, and not, not only the shy. facts, but also the experience and the law. Exactly. And, and I'm not shy about enough. saying that because I see even uh, inaccurate information from both sides to me is misinformation. You know, sometimes yeah. it's purposeful and that becomes propaganda. That is disinformation. Some, Exactly. Um, but I, I, I'm just, from my point of view, I'm just correcting the record because I have subject matter expertise that most people lack. Let me just remind you that when, even if, when you walk into federal court, you might have more trial experience than f- five 30 year old uh, AUSAs put together. But on Twitter, <laughs> everyone's a bigger expert than everyone else on all fields, but especially the law. Yeah. Yeah. The Google, the Google University degree. Um, no, and that's, and I find, you know, to me that it's entertaining and I, you know, I can get acerbic, I can get condescending, I can, you know, I I can do all those things, but you know, my view is look, if you, if, if, if I have to sort of whack you across the nose to educate you and everybody else, then, you know, so be it. Um, and, and I generally don't, you know, it's not usually gratuitous. It usually comes in response to somebody wondering about me being a fed like what okay 22 years yeah i was and i learned a lot i learned a lot in those 22 years um so the j6 cases um 
you know, I, I will say this. When we did, we, we screened 175 juror questionnaires in the uh, Oathkeeper case. You had long, detailed questionnaires about the Oathkeeper organization and the publicity rounding. Some of the questions early on in that were just asking the prospective jurors, you know, what are the news sources that you consume? I mean, 90% of the juror questionnaires had some combination of, and it had three lines. They could put their top three. 90% of them had some combination of the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, BBC, MSNBC, CNN. CNN. Yeah, yeah. Though I mean, but, you know, it's the practical reality. Or not, it's the actual reality in the city that, you know, in 2020 voted 92% for Joe Biden, 5% for Donald Trump. So, so that it goes without saying that that's what the juror questionnaires are going to say. Now, you know, do I think you can get a fair trial from those jurors? I, I no. Can you get a trial that the judges will say that the jurors are at least willing to represent that they'll be unbiased and consider the case only on the evidence? Sure. Is that the truth? No. But as I said to a judge, and not in D.C., in a different case that's high profile that I'm involved in that has the same kind of issues, you know, it's a legal fiction that our jury selection operates in. The legal fiction being that undisclosed bias can be weeded out and revealed through voir dire. You know, it's not going to be revealed if the juror doesn't want to give it up. The juror's just going to answer the question the way he thinks the judge needs to hear him or she he or she answer the question to stay on the panel. And that's my concern is that there is a significant number of people coming into the DC courthouse as jurors who want to be on the panels and then will say, Oh yeah, I can be, I can be fair. I, you know, I watch hundreds. I mean, you always, you always know during jury selection and you know, the people you most want, especially if you're a defense lawyer, and civil are the people who least want to be on the jury. They're the people who identify with your client. They have real jobs they'd rather be at. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're not rooting necessarily for the underdog. They're comfortable with the establishment. Now in Washington, that's those, those terms have very, very different meanings. But if you have people in Washington, well, so many of them work for the government, they're not worried about their jobs and they identify with the government. And I guess, you know, the thinking must be among the bench there that if they start granting motions to change venue in any case, they'll have to. They'll, they'll... Well, well, let me tell you what's behind that. It's a very simple proposition that you'll understand as a lawyer. Maybe we get a little legal lesson to everybody who's listening. In 1973, the D.C. Circuit in United States versus Haldeman, shockingly, said in response to a change of venue, uh, reviewing change of venue denial, um, you, you know, affirmed the denial and said for all practical purposes that the district court judge must attempt to pick a jury before concluding that no um, unbiased jury can be found and transferring the case to another jurisdiction. They have, I mean, that's the, it's in the Haldeman case. And that's binding circuit precedent. And, and, you know, I've made the point to the district judges and they kind of shrug that, you know, the world has changed quite significantly in the 50 years since Haldeman was decided. You know, Haldeman Watergate, 
You know, it's it's like, well, yeah, it was a big thing at the time. That's literally 50 years ago. You're right. Yeah, it's 50 years ago. But, you know, the, the way people receive and consume media is not the same now. I mean, it's no longer Cronkite and the other two guys. <laughs> you know, it's no longer three networks and, and, and two newspapers, which is which is what it was in, in, um, in 1973. You know, ABC, NBC, CBS, Washington Post, New York Times. You know, that was pretty much what everybody consumed their news from. I don't know, USA Today didn't exist at that point. Um, and that's just not the landscape today. Uh, and and so, but it's not going to change because the judges all read Haldeman as being binding. The, the Haldeman says, you got to try to pick a jury. So they're all trying to pick juries. And believe it or not, they're managing to find jurors who say, oh, yeah, I, I watched videos all day that day. And I've spent a lot of time on YouTube. But I can put all that aside and just judge it on the evidence. The only of the case. way this, the D.C., jury pool problem gets solved is by eliminating the dc jury the dc the, the dc uh district and circuit integrating it into the fourth circuit make it part of virginia it'll still be play it'll be, still be blue as hell still be blue as hell you know you'll be in there with northern virginia i i don't even, i'm not even insisting on maryland <laughs> i'll give you I'll give me virginia well but at it, least it, there'll, there'll be some filtering right. Well, you know, the, the, the circuit is going to have to grapple with denials in this case, and in these all of these cases. I mean, it, there have been hundreds, well, in hundreds, dozens and dozens of change of venue motions made and denied. And then those cases have gone on for trials. And so those issues are preserved for appeal. So that's going to be raised in somebody's conviction pretty soon before the D.C. Circuit. They're going to have to revisit Haldeman and decide whether they're going to affirm Haldeman that the judges have to try to pick a jury first. Um, and then that potentially going to end up in in the supreme court you know some of these cases are going to supreme court's going to have to take on one or more of these cases and validate what doj has done and what the district courts have allowed um and, and say it was all okay or it wasn't uh, maybe it's this fifteen twelve issue and the definition of corruptly that substantially narrows that statute and the way it's being used in which case hundreds of convictions will be thrown out um, so, so those are all things still yet to come, but you know, people don't understand this is the nature of how the system works. You have to go through a trial. That's your refrain. That's your frame, Bill, and that's what you are always bringing to the table. People base too much of their expectations in social media and, you know, in the human version, the meat space version of social media, on what they see on TV. Right. That's not how things work. It's not the speed at which things work. Uh, you know, there's a lot of education that could and should be done. Reading your stuff is one way that, that uh, you know, that that I think people could do it. Believe it or not, we're, this is it. We're out of it. Bill Shipley, Shipwreck Crew. We're going to have to continue this somehow, somewhere. Fantastic spending time with you. Anything I want to point anyone to any. Well, let, let me, on? let me, yeah, yeah, let me just say this, please, because, um, you know, I am representing defendants who could not afford their own lawyers and had appointed lawyers that they were unhappy with. And I have taken pretty much every case except for one or two based on I will fund it through crowdsourced public donation fundraising. And so my clients that I'm representing, 30 of them, cannot pay for their legal defense. Cannot pay for me to fly across country and stay in hotel rooms and and you know give me money for cat food and uh, so so there's the uh, a gives and go site called the January sixth Legal Defense Fund. There's a couple of imitators. Mine can be identified because all thirty of my clients are listed on the site. 
I put on the site the names of every defendant being supported by the donations. Um, so uh, January 6th Legal Defense Fund, it's a give, send, go account. Is that it? Uh, nope, that's not it. That may be, oh, hold on. That may be it. January 6th Legal Defense Fund. Watch it about. I can tell. Yep, that's it. That's it. Those are, that's uh, Jake Chansley on the left, the QAnon shaman, who I am preparing to file a, a petition to set aside his conviction. I would hope so. Well, my friend, thanks again. You're doing God's work and you're doing a lawyer's work. And we, we love what we do when we get to do it. Happy to be back anytime, Ron. It was great to meet you in DC. And I look forward to this being a long and lasting friendship. See you soon. Thanks again. Take care. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.